And good morning, church. Grab your Bibles if you would. And open them up to 1 John chapter 2. This morning we're going to finish up chapter 2 and get into uh, the first part of chapter 3. Uh, the final two verses of chapter 2, I believe, kind of sets the stage for the concerns that are addressed in chapter 3. Christianity begins with us believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. And then the question becomes, what's next? What happens after that? I mean, once you've repented of your sins and you, you turned to faith in Jesus, then the next for us is to abide in Jesus Christ. And so John's going to address that abiding in him. What you need to understand is that in the Greek, when you see that word abide, it can be translated uh, or understood to, to be uh, to remain in, uh, to continue in, uh, to stay. Up to this point, John has already used that word a number of times in chapter 2. And so to refresh your memory, let's, let's back up a, a little bit. Look at chapter 2, verse number 6. He says, the one who says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Then in verse number 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. Verse number 14, look at the second part. It says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Then verse number 17, it might not be so obvious there, but verse 17 says that the world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The word that's translated as lives is the same Greek word that's translated as abide. And so it's the, it's the same word there. Verse number 24, he uses that word three different times. He says, as for you, let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then the, the verse right before 28, verse 27, says, As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And the anointing, it, it, it remains in you, continues in you, stays in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and it is not a lie, and just that it has taught you, you abide in him. That word abide conveys a connection or a closeness that exists between faith and doctrine. Yet again, we see the theme playing out that belief and behavior are directly connected to one another. And so our text for this morning begins in verse number 28. John writes, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So here, in this one verse, John reveals a twofold benefit for those that abide in Jesus Christ. The first benefit is that of having confidence. We have confidence. That word confidence suggests the absence of fear when speaking. So confidence carries the idea of boldness, of openness, 
of freedom, of assurance, and of courage. John uses the word confidence four times in this letter. He uses it here in, in verse number 28. He uses it again in chapter 4, verse number 17. And both times when he uses the word, he's using it to describe a believer's confidence at the return of Jesus Christ. But then he uses it two more times, chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 5, verse number 14. And those times he's using it to talk about the believer's confidence that they have so that they could go to God in prayer. And so in our text this morning, uh, this word confidence describes standing before Jesus Christ at the time of his second coming without any fear or shame. Those who are faithful, those who are abiding in Christ will have confidence before the Lord. Those who fail to abide, those that fail to stay true to his teachings, who who move on or get entangled with false teachings, uh, they will, will lack that confidence and they will shrink away from Him in shame. The return of our Lord is sure. We will all stand before Him. The only question is, what will that experience be like for you? I want you to know that you can stand confidently before Him because of your personal, obedient, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. So those that abide in Him will have confidence, and then those that abide in Him will have no shame. When we abide in Christ, we will not shrink back in shame, we will not shrink back in fear. Now, we don't usually... Think about Christians experiencing shame at the second coming of our Lord. But you have to remember when Jesus comes back, he will come back and he will bring judgment. Every single one of us will have to stand before God and give an account for our lives, the things that we've done and the things that we have failed to do. And when our works are evaluated, then at that time the possibility of shame exists. I want to show you what Scripture has to say about that. Turn with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning there, if I can get some help real quick, if I can get somebody to close those doors for me, please, uh, that would be a great benefit for me. It's a security issue. Yeah, those doors right there, please. Shut those doors. Won't ask me why, I'll explain to you later, but not now. As you're turning to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's look at, um, pick up in verse number 10. Some of you are like wondering, why am I having you shut those doors? I've got you trapped in here now. No, I mean, I'll just go ahead and deal with it now. Doors are closed. If something were to happen or someone were to enter, they'd have to open the doors. If the doors are already open, then you won't notice that happening. But if the doors suddenly open, then attention will be drawn there. Hey, why are you walking in now? That's, that's the reason. Are we good? Cool. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 10 says, 
according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on him. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will be, uh, become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and that fire tests itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which uh, he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Well, Paul picks it up again. Turn with me now. Go, go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. This is what he says in chapter 5. Uh, pick up in verse number uh, 6. He said, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our amb ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And then verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, we will all stand before our Lord to give an account for what we have done. And we will either receive a reward because of the good that we have done, or we will experience shame because of what we failed to do. We won't lose salvation, because salvation has everything to do with Jesus, but, but we will experience shame in that moment. So those that abide in Jesus Christ can have confidence to stand before Him because they know that they will not experience shame at His judgment. Look at verse number uh, 29 now. John continues and he says, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now, now many people do good things live righteous lives, but they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Now others claim to have faith, but rarely, if ever, do they do good things or good deeds. I want you to understand that true abiding faith in Jesus Christ always results in good works. Always. Now, good works do not produce salvation, but Genuine salvation produces good works in the life of a believer. And so with the stage being set, we get into chapter 3. In chapter 3, he begins and says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. So, so verse 1 tells us who we are. 
Verse 1 tells us that we are members of God's family. Verse 1 tells us who we are. Verse 2 tells us who we are becoming. We are becoming the reflection of the glory of God. John begins this chapter with that word, see. Or some of your translations might render that word as behold. There, It's an, it's an exclamation of, of wonder and amazement. John's calling for the direct attention and reflection upon the amazing love that God has bestowed upon His children. Which not only has God offered us uh, forgiveness and an opportunity of reconciliation with, uh, with Him, He also extends to us the privilege of becoming part of His family. Become His children. And being God's children not only is it an extreme privilege, but it also helps to, for us to understand why this world doesn't recognize, appreciate, uh, uh, respect, or admire who we are or what we do. And the reason is because the verse says in verse 1, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. And so, John starts it off with an extreme declaration of amazement and wonder at the love of God that he would allow us to be grafted into his family. And in verse number three, he says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, although John makes it very clear, and in fact, I'll show you, go back to chapter 1. John makes it very clear in chapter 1 that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses the believer from sin. In verse, chapter 1, verse number 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so... Chapter 1, verse number one, 7 tells us it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. Now here, John says in, in verse number 3, that everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So chapter 1 says Jesus purifies us, cleanses us from sin. Uh, chapter 3 is talking about this self-purification. Are those things at odds with one another? Does one of them contradict the other? And the answer is no, it's not. John is not the only one that writes about a believer's responsibility to engage in this self-purification. Other writers of the New Testament also say the same thing. In fact, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 1. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, so Paul also mentions it. And then James says it as well. James chapter 4, verse number 8 says, Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So John says it. Paul says it. James says it. Peter declares it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 22. 
says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The, the believer responsibility is to make sure that their lives are continually being purified. That, that we're confessing sins, we're repenting of sins, and we're receiving the grace, the love, and the forgiveness that God extends unto all of us. And anyone who sets their hearts upon uh, the, the future purification that will be the final purification, anyone who truly sets their hearts upon that future and final purification will experience present purification in the process. In other words, true believers who set their hope in Jesus Christ for their future vindication, for their future complete glorification, well, well they will have the hope and the assurance and the motivation to live their lives in a way in anticipation for what's to come. Faith in the future grounds perseverance in the present. And those who, who do not pursue holiness and righteousness prove that they do not know God because they neither reflect the character of God nor do they truly live their lives in light of His return. When you get to verse number 4, John now proceeds to show how being a child of God is incompatible with having a lifestyle of sin. Verse number four says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So let's be crystal clear this morning. Everyone literally means everyone. There are no exceptions. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. So a couple things that are happening here. So that we're clear, let's understand what sin means. Uh, in the classic Greek, sin could be translated as missing the mark. Missing the mark that God has established for all of us. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, for all of us, pastor included, ha have missed the mark. Right? So we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions in this place. Sin is the intentional or even the unintentional breaking of God's moral standard. Sin is a direct violation of the Holy Word of God. Sin is a, a complete offense to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And so notice what's happening in this verse. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. So now he, he combines this verb practice. He, he combines the verb practice with the nouns sin and lawlessness used interchangeably to talk about missing the, the mark that God has called for us. But this verb now practice is emphasizing that this is an ongoing action. It is a willful or habitual state of a person's life. 
I want to be so clear. John is not talking about the occasional sin of our lives, but rather he's talking about those that embrace and practice a lifestyle of sin. Uh, to make a habit of sinning is to live in complete rebellion against both the Word of God and the will of God. And such sin should not be taken lightly. It should be dealt with. It should be addressed. Verse number 5 says, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sin. So the glorious truth is that Jesus came to take away our sin. That's why John, John the Baptist declares in John chapter 1, verse number 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so, uh, because in Jesus there is no sin, and if we're to walk as Jesus walked, then in us there should be a desire, an intentional pursuit for us to avoid sin at all costs. It is impossible for us to consistently and faithfully walk with Jesus while we support or participate in the sin and the very thing in which He came to destroy. He says in verse number 6, it's a continuation of the thought. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Verse number 6 is the natural deduction from verse number 5. Since Jesus came to take away sin, and since there is no sin in Jesus, and since the believers to pattern their lives after our Lord, then it is true that if we are going to abide in Him and to remain in Him, then we are not going to have a life of sin. Now, this verse has, has proven to be the center of much debate. Theological arguments and disputes abound because it says, no one who abides in him sins. So the center of the debate, what is, what is John talking about here? Is John suggesting that if someone professes to be a believer, then commits an act of sin, then that sin reveals that they were never a believer in the first place? And that if you're going to be a true believer, then you'll never commit a sin in your life. If that were the case, and it's not, but if that were the case, then he would be contradicting what he said in chapter 1, verse number 8, what he said in chapter 1, verse number 10. So is John contradicting himself in chapter 3 to chapter 1? The answer is no. In fact, based upon John's earlier statements, it's obvious that while we as believers enjoy a position or a standing of sinlessness, while we enjoy that position or that standing, that we enjoy that position and that standing through our identification with Jesus Christ. His holiness, His righteousness is imputed upon us credited to our account, while the great exchange is our sin is credited to His. 
So it's also apparent from John's writings that a genuine believer will not continually sin. They will not live a lifestyle or the, the habit of sin. Specific sins may show up in, in snapshots of our lives, but the video of our life is no longer labeled sin. So there might be blips of it that occur, but the running theme of it should never be. So in verse number 7, he encourages yet again, and he says, little children, make sure that no one deceives you. John does not deny that Christians are often sin, but he does deny that Christians can live in sin. Don't be deceived. Righteousness arises from our connection with God, and sin arises for our connection to the devil. If you're here, and you are enjoying deliberate sin, if you are here, if you're listening, if you're watching, and you lack conviction over your sin, if you lack even the slightest amount of remorse uh, against your, your violation of the holy standard of God, if that's you, that cautions you. Be extremely careful of how you identify yourself. I caution you with the words of Paul that, that you ought to examine yourselves to see if you are truly of the faith. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5, says to test yourself to see if you are of the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. So if you lack any remorse at all, if you lack any conviction over sin, then it's time that you need to examine yourself to see if you are truly of the faith. John's words are clear. You cannot live that way. You can't embrace sin and just live an all-out rebellion against God and think that you're at peace with Him and that you're one of His children. Because belief and behavior are linked together. Verse 7 continues. And he says that the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. This verse too often causes problems, is uh, the center of much debate. At first impulse, we can have a tendency to think that there are people who have lived good lives. And I'm sure you can think of people. There are good people, right? Good people according to our standards. They do good things. They're nice. They're generous. They're, they, they're, they're upstanding citizens. They, they might even live a good moral life. But if they don't believe in and through Jesus Christ, then that doesn't mean that just because they lived a good moral life that they're good with God. If we only had this verse we might come to that conclusion. It, 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 could, it could be difficult for us to explain away, but we don't just have this verse. Scripture makes it clear that it is through Jesus 
and Him alone that we can receive salvation. No matter how good or how sacrificial of, of a life that you live, if you deny or reject Jesus, then there is no way for you to receive the reward of heaven. It is impossible. And in verse 8, he, he says the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That first phrase, the one who practices sin is of the devil. This does not mean that when a believer sins, that they, they lose out of their standing of being a child of God, and they revert back to their former standing of now being a child of the devil. That's not what this is saying. It's not about when you sin, do you lose your salvation? Christians are assured of their salvation throughout this letter and the entirety of Scripture. However, when we sin, we are definitely siding with the adversary. We are living in opposition to the Word of God and to the will of God. We're cooperating with the devil when we sin. And our cooperation with him in that moment means that we're standing in opposition to our Lord. Satan consistently stands in opposition to Christ and, and to our Father. I mean, think about it. Jesus is God who humbled himself to become a servant. Satan was a servant who wanted to become equal with God. And so from the very beginning of his fall, Satan has been a sinner. And Christ come uh, to destroy his work. You need to understand that word destroy in this verse. That word destroy does not mean to annihilate. Look around the world today and you can see how Clearly, Satan is still at work. He has not been annihilated to this point. That word destroy means to break down, to undo, or even to render ineffective. So yes, it's true that Satan has not been annihilated, but his power has been reduced. His weapons have been impaired. No, no, don't get me wrong. Like, he's still a, a foe that ought to be feared and, 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 and we, we ought to live with the proper understanding of his influence, but he ain't no match for the power of God. Satan is no match for a church, for a community of believers who are living a life in full submission and surrender to the Word of God and to the will of the Father. So he's still effective, but he's not more powerful than our God. And in verse number 9 and 10, this part wraps up and he says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who who does not love his brother. So a person 
who deliberately and habitually sins is proving by their own actions that they do not know God. When, when a believer receives Jesus Christ as their Savior and, and, and as Lord of their lives, then a tremendous spiritual change occurs in the life of that person. The, first of all, they're given a brand new standing before God. That new standing is a term that we call justification. Right? It means that through Christ, we have now been justified. We are now accepted before God because of the righteousness of Jesus. I want you to understand that our justification never changes. Our justification never needs to be renewed because it can never be lost. So, so we have a new standard of being justified. Not only do we have a new standard of being justified, we now have a new position in life. This position is called sanctification. So we have justification, and now we also have this new position of being sanctified. To be sanctified means to be set apart. We're, we once lived for our own desires, for our own selfishness, out of our own greedy nature. But now through faith in Jesus, we've been justified, and now we're sanctified, we're set apart. We're set apart now to live in full submission and surrender unto the will of God. Now we live not for our own selves, but now we live a life to glorify God, and to make His glory known. But that's, that's not all. There's more. Probably the, the most dramatic change that occurs really isn't just the justification or the sanctification. It's this word that we use that's called a regeneration. You've heard that word, right? Regeneration occurs in the life of a believer. That re means a, a new. Generation means birth. So there's a, a new birth. That's where we get the Christian term born again. Right? There's this born again experience that happens in our lives. And the only way that we can enter into God's family is by trusting in Jesus Christ and experiencing this new birth. Physical birth gives physical life. Spiritual birth gives spiritual life. John chapter 3, verse number 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there's this new birth that occurs. So as Christians, as, as believers, when I talk about our spiritual parents, so to speak, uh, you can think of uh, the, the will of, or the Word of God and the Spirit of God acting as our spiritual parents. Which means the Spirit of God is going to use the Word of God to bring correction, to bring guidance, to bring assurance, to bring encouragement into our lives. So a, a question that's worth our consideration this morning would be, how does a child of God go about overcoming the desires of our old nature? And I'm so glad that you asked me that question. I am very quickly going to give you three things, three ways on how 
uh, a child of God can overcome the desires of the old nature. Rapid fire succession, it goes like this. First of all, we must spend time reading and studying the Word of God. By reading and studying the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse number 11, says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Word of God in our hearts and lives will help us to avoid sin. When we're studying His Word, when we're reading, when we're memorizing, when we have His Word in our mind and in our hearts, that will help to prevent us from getting entangled in sin. Number two, we must take the time to pray. We pray. We ask God to guide us and to direct us. We're going to read and study His Word. And we're going to pray, asking for guidance and direction. And in that process, if and, and when we do sin, then we need to immediately confess that sin unto God and to receive the forgiveness that He's ready to, to pour out into our lives. So it's reading His Word. It's spending time in prayer. And then it's understanding that when, not if, but when temptation comes our way, we must immediately turn to Jesus for victory. So when temptation comes our way, we must immediately turn to Jesus for victory. The best practice that you can do in your life in the face of temptation, the best thing that you can do is in the moment of temptation, that you would claim the promise of God. What's his promise? I'm going to read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You need to write this one down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13. Not only do you need to write it down, you need to commit this thing to memory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Catch that? You're going to be tempted. Your temptation's not going to be unique or original to you. But when you're tempted, know that God is faithful because in your temptation, God is going to provide a way of escape. And so what immediately happens, immediate, what immediately happens following temptation is the result of our vision. What are you looking at? Like, if in the face of temptation, you keep your eyes on that temptation, then more likely than not, it's going to lead you to sin. But if in your temptation, you take your eyes off the temptation and you begin looking for the promise of God, how He's going to provide that escape route for you, so now you're not only fixed on temptation, you're fixed upon Jesus providing that escape route, then you're more likely to not commit the sin that the temptation's enticing you with. So may you know that freedom is found in and through Jesus Christ. 
John has been very clear to address sin in the life of believers. You cannot live an outright rebellious, sinful life and claim that you're a child of God. Because your behavior is contradicting and giving evidence that that claim is not true. May you know that as children of God, we'll still mess up. We'll still struggle. In those mess-ups and in those struggles, we need to confess those unto God to receive the grace, the love, and the forgiveness that He's ready to pour out upon us. When we face that temptation, claim the promise to look for that escape route, to hide the Word of God in our hearts and our lives, and to remain faithful and true unto Him so that He can be glorified in and through all that we do know that if we live that type of way, then we can have confidence to stand before our Lord at the time of judgment, knowing that we are going to receive the reward of a life filled with good works. We no longer have to be afraid to stand before our Lord. We no longer have to worry about hiding in shame or, or shrinking back and, and, and cowering in fear. If we will abide in Him, remain Continue in Him. Stay in Him and in His Word Then we need not be afraid of Let's pray. As we move into our time of prayer this morning, I just want to ask you a, four, a few questions if I could. Should we give serious consideration as we pray? First thing I would ask you is do you have the divine nature of the Spirit of God within you? Or are you merely pretending to be a believer? Have you truly been born of God? If the answer is yes, do you cultivate this divine nature with daily prayer and reading of His Word. You have the a habit of, of prayer, devotion, reading, and studying the Word of God. If not, why not? What will it take for you to settle down into a routine of praying and studying the Word of God? As we're gathered this morning, do you have any unconfessed sin? Are you ready? Better yet, are you willing to deal with the skeletons that are in your closet? Will you confess and forsake them today? Do you tend to allow the old nature to control your thoughts and desires? Does the divine nature reign in you? When temptation comes, do you play with it? Do you entertain it? Or do you run from it? Perhaps a final question. What one decision today could make the greatest impact in your life. 
one decision to make the greatest impact in your life. Can you identify that decision? Will you follow through? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church, for this community, for the work that you're doing in and among us, Father. What a great joy and privilege it is to gather together, to open your word and to immerse ourselves in it. Father, I pray this isn't the only time our Bibles are cracked. God, help us to have a hunger for your word. Not just to know it for knowledge's sake, but to know it for wisdom's sake so that we can rightly apply the truth in our lives. God, we thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your son and his sacrifice. For those that believe, Father, may our lives honor the sacrifice of our Lord. And for those that don't believe, Father, may your spirit bring about conviction into their lives. May you grant them the faith that's necessary for their them to receive the salvation that you offer by your grace. Father, we thank you for this day. We ask your blessings upon us as we leave. We ask your protection, guidance. God, help us to cross paths with individuals that, that need to know more about you. Help us to be willing to talk and to share your great love. In Christ's name I pray.